This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Daniel Ben-Corin. In this episode, we're joined by BJ Fogg, who is one of the world's leading behavioral science experts, and he's the author of a new book, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. BJ Fogg is very well known in the tech world for his research into behavioral change, and he was interviewed by Carl Miller, the tech expert from the think tank Demos. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Carl Miller. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. BJ, thank you so much for being here. Carl, thank you for having me. For the listeners that haven't managed to get a chance to get their hands on your book then, let's begin with the book. What's kind of like the main point that you want to give the reader? What's its gift? Well, I brought together 10 years of background research on how behavior works and specifically nine years of hands-on teaching of the Tiny Habits Method. And the book brings together those methods and models for the first time. And it's a whole new way of thinking about behavior and a whole new way of creating habits. And so in some ways, I reject the tradition and I explain, don't do the traditional one because it doesn't work very well. Here's how to do it in a better way that's quick and easy. And in a nutshell, tiny habits are what exactly? Well, it's three hacks. And basically, you take whatever new habit you want and you scale it back to be super tiny, super small. Number two, you find where it fits naturally in your routine. What does it come after naturally? So, for example, flossing one tooth would come after brushing your teeth. And then you wire in the habit. Here's the third hack by firing off a positive emotion inside yourself. So there's a technique for that that helps wire the habit into your brain. So it's emotions that create habits. And in tiny habits, there's a technique for that. So it's essentially trying to put people in the kind of driving seat of their own habits so they can construct the habits they want and get rid of the ones they don't. Yeah, absolutely. One way to think about the habits in your life is like you have this garden of different plants and flowers and trees, and each one is a habit. And you can either design that garden or you can just let it run amok and weeds grow, bad habits. And so designing them is easier than most people think. And that's what the book's all about. Here's how you do that. Because, of course, we're in January and people are trying to do their weeding. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, we're all painfully aware of all the bad habits that we actually, well that we actually have. What are people getting wrong now? And what, why do people oh, so stubbornly cling to the habits yeah. which they don't really want? How do I say this? Most of the traditional advice around habits and changing your behavior is misleading and will set people up to fail. The way most people do New Year's resolutions, at least in the U.S., where I'm most familiar, is in some ways exactly the wrong direction. Why do people cling to habits that don't serve them? 
Well, habits wire in as a function of emotion. So if you do a behavior, whether you consider it a good habit or a bad habit, it all wires in the same way. When you do a behavior and you have a, a net gain in positive emotion, we can unpack that later mm-hmm. if you want, then that habit wires in. Sometimes, and it's our society that calls you know, snacking at three in the morning on chocolate cake a bad habit and exercise, you know, meditating at four in the morning, a good habit. But the way habits wire in is the same for good habits and bad habits. And so it's actually a kind of neutral activity then for human beings to simply wire in the good and wire out the bad. Yeah. And what I'm explaining in Tiny Habits for the first time systematically is this how is how habits form. It's a natural human process. It involves the brain. And here's how you hack it. Here's how you do it with these three hacks in a way that some people call magical. I can't really call it that as a scientist because – but it, it's just much easier than people think. Okay. Well, we'll come back to the book. But okay. this, of course, is the, the product of actually a very rich and textured mm-hmm. um, tradition of work that you've been doing for many time. I mean, you are famous in Silicon Valley. Some have mm-hmm. called you the kind of one of the most influential kind of scientists of behavior that, that, that's currently living. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about your background a bit and how you've okay. come up to this book. So um, many people have said you're a behavioral economist, which I understand yeah. to be wrong. It's not really behavioral economics what you do. What's the kind of academic tradition which you're drawing these insights out of? Yeah. So my training as a graduate student is in experimental psychology. So running true experiments in controlled conditions. And behavioral economics is slightly different arena. So the ability to look at a problem design an experiment, run the experiment, do the statistics. That's my core method right there. Behavioral economics emerges. So so I come from the field of applied communication, which is a subset of psychology. And behavioral economics and that work emerges from a different academic arena. So I, you know, I wasn't part of that tradition. It's more the tradition of media facts and running experiments to understand how humans respond to media and then more with computers. And so, of course, and then let's go to computers then, because many, of course, have pinpointed you as being the kind of vanguard of this kind of mixing yeah. of psychology and technology together within your lab at Stanford. So yeah. could you talk a bit about like what, what that lab has uh-huh. done over the years and, and maybe what its kind of impact in the technologies which we have and use on a daily basis to be? Yeah, one of the insights I had in the early 90s, and I was actually living in France, immersing myself in French culture and language to really learn how to speak French. But I was reading things in French, and I was reading about rhetoric and reading about Aristotle and the sophists and so on. And the insight was like, wow, this, you know, this classical domain of rhetoric and this new domain of technology will overlap someday. And that's what I wanted to study as a doctoral student. So that's what I began studying. I naively thought that other people had already studied this because to me, the overlap, once I saw it, it seemed obvious. Of course, we're going to be using computers to influence attitudes and behaviors. And then after about a year of work at Stanford as a graduate student looking for who's doing this, it turns out nobody was. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm the first one to do it systematically. There were a few experiments here and there, but no systematic work. And so what I ended up doing was systematic experiments to understand how computers can influence our attitudes and behaviors. And if you know Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, he has six principles in there. I was basically replicating those principles, testing to see if those social influence principles could also be used by technology to influence people. And the answer is 
yes. At the beginning, when I was sharing, as we were sharing the results in the papers, some people just couldn't believe the results. They thought the experiments were faulty in some way because it was such a, a new idea that you'd be using computers to influence people's behaviors. And at the time, computers were used mainly for storage or for big calculations and not for the... But we were running experiments using voice interactions with the next boxes. And I hated actually doing the voice ones. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wanted to use the standard GUI and I'd program in HyperCard. Uh, but my advisor, Cliff Nass, was really into next boxes and voice interaction. And he rightly foresaw... 20 years later, 30 years later, that voice would be a big deal. But I remember running these voice experiments where you would talk to the computer and talk back and designing. It's like, why am I doing this? I just want to do a GUI interface. But what came out of that work is, is I saw, yes, computers can influence our attitudes and behaviors. And so in 1998, in an industry conference, the CHI conference, which is the big one, I brought people together and said, here's this new thing that's happening. There's significant potential, but there's also dark sides. And so from the very beginning, I was saying, here are the ethical issues that I'm foreseeing and so on. And so it was kind of, on one hand, like, let's highlight the positive that can happen by using technology to help people be happier and healthier. But let's also be aware of the dark sides and try to head off the bad things from happening. Now, there was a moment in 2006 where a subcommittee of Congress in the United States asked me to join this event called TechAid. And the speakers there were supposed to say, you know, what are the problems coming up? And so I talked about persuasive tech. This is 2006. The, te- the problems with, that I first saw with technology, and I really boiled it down to three things. And I'll mention those, but side note, this came at the time I was teaching a class that had two students that are, I mean, many students, but two that are doing vastly different things today. One of them was Mike Krieger, who later founded Instagram. He was in my class at the time and actually helped me with the, the, the testimony to, uh, to the FTC. And then the other was Tristan Harris, who now is working on Time Well Spent and at this moment is in Davos and is doing amazing, Facebook. amazing work. Yeah, Tristan Harris, amazing work about what this means to have algorithms and the attention economy and all that. And in the video I mapped out, what I saw as three issues. One would be collecting uh, data on what persuades individuals and then finding our vulnerabilities and using it against us. And as I listened to that video again in like 2016, 10 years later, I did say, predict that it would be used in elections. I'd forgotten that. It's like, boom, that's what happened, I believe. Next had to do with video games and how video games could manipulate us. And the third I talked about how videos would be manipulated. There was no word for it, but now we call those deep fakes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Big sigh, because <laughs> no one really did anything. You know, I expected, I, I've written a book on this in 2002. I've pointed out the, the challenges we're going to be facing. I've testified to the subcommittee. Nobody did anything. So it was at a time when people weren't too concerned about these things. And of course, that's changed. So the Persuasive Technology Lab, and not just those two illustrious former pupils, but but many others, I mean, the heads of growth of most of the huge platforms which we use today, they're all, they, they were all um, pupils of yours, weren't they? And Maybe some of them, yeah. That would, might be an overstatement. But what I did at Stanford attracted a certain kind of student, 
And more than anything else, we I tried to do innovative things in every class. So every class at Stanford is on a new topic that I think is new and groundbreaking and will intrigue a certain kind of student. And when you talk about the techniques that I shared, I really focused on simplicity. So that's the main technique is simplicity changes behavior. What would the world look like today? How would these platforms be different if these people didn't go through your class? Like, hmm. what, what, what are the like elements in Facebook and Instagram yeah. and the others that you see coming out of your own work in the way they're yeah. designed and the way that people experience them? It's a great question. Honestly, I don't think they would be any different. So you don't think your teaching had much of influence on the actual platform design? I think, did Mark Zuckerberg take my class? No. Did the founder of Twitter take my class? No. There was so much but innovation. The heads, but the heads of growth at those yeah. companies did. I, I think if you get the psychological recipe right, and certainly people did that without my influence, then it's going to catch and take off. Certain people might be able to accelerate the growth, but I don't think it actually changes the path. So there might be certain products. I'm trying to think. I'm actually, yeah, I'm not convinced that my teaching or my work has changed the course of technology. What I'm hoping is it's helped people see more clearly what's going on, like Tristan Harris has done, Mm -hmm. and shining a spotlight on it. Mm -hmm. So people are more aware earlier of the potential issues and helping us do something about it. Okay, so I mean, and I promise we will get, we will come back because the, the mm-hmm. book's message, as far as I can understand it, is actually a very empowering one. It's mm-hmm. to do with how we can, you know, we have an infinite potential to change ourselves through the habits. But I mean, the, the book does come out at a moment when, especially with technology, people are increasingly feeling like the platforms they use are additive in one way or another, yeah. that, that actually they're not making deliberate choices and that the habits they formed and their children have formed are, are very different from the ones that they want. So I suppose like the, the first question in, in that context is, what's the difference between persuasion and compulsion? Yeah, it's a good, I, I had to define that in my book, 2002, where I talked about that. And I, I see compulsion as having... Well, at least coercion. Compulsion's a trick. I'll go with coercion, which is actually changing your question. Coercion has more of a, a force where somebody doesn't have another choice. They're cornered and must do it. Whereas persuasion is getting people to do something, not out of force, but maybe something they didn't intend to do. But it's like, oh, maybe I will share my photos in this way, or maybe I will start this savings plan, and they can be. But, but persuasion can be making an argument to someone and 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 changing their mind, or it can yeah. be the formation of habits, yeah. which are, doesn't actually have any kind of action on their on their beliefs at all. It's it's simply changing behavior on the basis of creating habits which didn't exist. Yeah, and I I wouldn't I certainly didn't define persuasion as causing people to create habits, so that would be outside of the definition. No, a word like persuasion is defined in lots of ways. And, you know, to write a book like Persuasive Technology, you've got to define persuasion and also what persuasive technology means. So certainly it's technology designed to influence attitudes and behaviors without using coercion or deception or manipulation which is, is how I've defined it. 
let, let, can we talk about uh, friction as a moment? Yeah. Uh, for a moment. So, so friction like seems to be an incredibly important force, yeah. you know, an idea within Silicon Valley, whilst people outside of it r- very rarely talk about the way that friction works and how important it is for kind of guiding people's behaviour. Has friction kind of come up in your research and your thinking about, about why yeah. people do the things they oh, do? Super important. I mean, I see friction, the way I talk about friction is simplicity. Right. So simplicity is things that are easy to do. Friction would be you're trying to do something and there's roadblocks, something that's making it hard to do. So in some ways, it's the same concept. And it was early on in looking at what's working in the real world with technology that the pattern was very, very clear to me that it was the things that are really simple and easy to use. Those were the things that caught on. Instagram won, not because they used any tricky persuasion technique. It was the easiest to use. When Twitter came out, I was a huge fan. They got, they got criticized by TechCrunch and others. TechCrunch called it idiotic because it was so simple compared to Blogger and others. And I looked at it and I said, this is great. The simplest way, the simplest thing, with the exception of games, the simplest products tend to win. And so you know, early on, and just my own hardwiring as a person, I've always valued simplicity. The simplest thing with the greatest impact is what I'm always looking for. And I admire the work of people like Picasso and Mozart and Calder and Charles Schultz who were able to take very simple forms or melodies or narratives and create something very powerful. And those, those, that kind of thing inspires me. And fast forward to today, tiny habits. Bam. And so I think the, the thread or what continues in my work, even though the Maybe the day-to-day research shifts is the power of simplicity in changing behavior. Do you think the all the technology platforms people are worried about have they gone too far? Do you think in no. in using your work? <laughs> I mean, like, have yeah. they? Have they? Uh, we will talk about ethics in a second because I know you've been writing okay. about ethics from the very be beginning. Specific. And, how, how do you think they've used my work? Um, I, I think that's overstated. Okay. No. I'm, I will, please explain why. Because I mean, like, I guess like the the the, the general impression is that. The platforms have been designed in ways which try and form habits on the basis of people's perceived cognitive biases, dopamine studies, and that, you know, the way they're optimised for engagement and use are very powerful, as you said, largely unconstrained by any kind of well understood or Mm -hmm. or enforced ethical framework coming from a legislative authority, which I think you've already mentioned you were calling out for from the very beginning. And perhaps that isn't descending from your work. But I guess like on a very kind of like simple level, people will say, well, they're really persuasive in the sense that they have persuaded billions of people around the world to use them. Yeah. You know, it's it's just with my book now, 2020, that I explain in detail how habits work, that emotions create habits. So that wasn't available to anybody unless you worked with me privately. And I did not work with Facebook or Twitter and so on. I've worked with other companies, health Mm -hmm. companies and financial wellness but let me help frame it up. Sure. So there are two, two approaches here when you have a model. One is for analysis and the other approach is design. And so any good models you can use in both ways. So you can take, say, my behavior model and then look back and analyze why did it work. Or you can take my behavior model and design something. And so let me take two of the maxims from my book and map it and help explain. So analysis. Number And there's two things that matter like crazy. One is to help people do what they already want to do. I sensed that early, and I just resisted. It's like, no, that can't really be the answer. 
And then after 10 years, I finally said, no, that's it. If you want to design a winning, here's the pattern. Everything that's gone big helps people do what they want to do. Bam. So therefore, let's flip that to design. If you want to design a successful product or service, help people do what they want to do. Notice that has nothing to do with persuasion. You're helping them do what they already want to do. That's important. Number two is help people feel successful. Again, that's the, the pattern, whether you're looking at video games or using Instagram or you know, balancing your checkbook with some app, it helps you feel successful. The products and services that make you feel foolish or stupid or dumb, you stop using. And we have dozens of these on our phone that didn't do that well and we never launched them again. So those are the two key maxims. And the third one is simplicity changes behavior. So those, in some ways, extracting from my re- research and what the patterns I see and what really works, those are the three keys and I call them maxims because they are, I guess, a distillation of so much research and observation of those are the keys right there. Okay. Well, let's, let's, go, let's, go, let's go to the book. Do you think the, um, one of the values for the book might be to kind of help people actually unwire a series of habits to do with technology, yeah, which they, sure. which they, because I mean, I, I guess the the paradox is that people want to do something and don't want to do something yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nowhere near as easy as saying that you're you're simply allowing people to kind of fulfil an already existing wish. People want to drink and don't want to drink. Yeah. People want to take drugs and don't want to take drugs. I guess I would say that digital technology, in a way, so at least some of these platforms have have done that too. They've unleashed a series of latent, incredibly important, powerful, primordial psychological forces, yeah. which we both want to do and don't want to do at the same time. Yeah, so and I call that conflicting motivations. And yes. there's a way to model and map that. And in addition to that, our motivations for using something will change over time. So let's take Instagram as an example. You first might use it as a way to you know, capture your life and share it with friends. And then as time goes on, your motivations may shift. And by not logging in and not keeping up with friends, you get anxious about that, which wasn't why you started in the first place. So there is a way to look and analyze that, wow, at first you were getting these positive emotions from using it, but as time went on, then you had FOMO. You had this negative emotion that you could resolve only by logging in and making sure you weren't missing anything. Or, or gaming addiction. Like now, a, I mean, still a um, controversial but, but largely increasingly recognized, psychologically defined, diagnosable addiction. Yeah, another great example, I suppose. Well, and I don't study games directly, but these same things map, especially help people feel successful. Games do that. So once in a while, I don't play games much, but once in a while, I'll download a mobile game, and it's just so notable how, from the outset, it's like it it affirms that you're succeeding, succeeding, succeeding. That's not by accident either. It came out of an algorithm, or somebody understood that. I mean, games go way back to when I you know, before I was born even, right? So they were, by affirming that you're succeeding, they're wiring in that habit. Well, when we come back, I'm going to be asking BJ about how we can dump some of our tiny habits and create better tiny habits around exactly this question of, of tech. Now it's time for a quick break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. So for all the people out there that both themselves and their children are worried about digital addiction, they're worried about the amount of screen time they've got, they're worried about the psychological implications of using these platforms, let's now dwell on tiny habits and what lessons you have, perhaps better than anyone else, to actually detether us from those kinds of habits. So, so w- w- what's your line of thinking? Where, yeah. where, where do we begin? Well, let me lay the foundation, and it's pretty straightforward. I have a model, and it goes like this. Behavior happens when people have motivation to do the behavior, ability to do the behavior, and third, a prompt. So it's just those three things, motivation, ability, prompt. And a behavior doesn't happen if you remove any one of those things. So let's talk about, say, using social media on your phone. If you can remove motivation, then you'll stop. Well, that's going to be hard to do. If you can remove ability or reduce it, you'll stop or reduce it. That's, that's possible, and we can do that through tiny habits. And the third one is removing the prompt, which you can also do through tiny habits. So being realistic about how habits like this using social media work, you're probably not going to be able to demotivate yourself. So then you're left with ability and prompt. And, and in general, tiny habits can work on any of those. Either of those axes. Well, let me give work. a different example. So let's say I don't want to eat, like I get served fish with french fries. I don't want to eat the french fries. So if I take a bunch of pepper and pour it all over the french fries, I then reduce my motivation for those french fries okay. in a single act. Yeah. There's not something equivalent that I can think of for social media. Yeah. There's no like pouring pepper on social media to make it undesirable. Okay. So there are ways to reduce motivation in other domains, but in social media you're left with, how do I make it harder to do? And one specific, one habit that I totally advocate is when you park at a restaurant to go into dinner, leave your phone in the car. So it's after I park, I will leave my phone in the car. So by doing that, you make the behavior of sitting there at the dinner table scrolling pretty much hard to do. You'd have to run out to the car. Mm -hmm. But it does take this moment where you just leave it in the car. On the flip side, when we go to prompt, it could be that you don't want to use social media so much at work, don't want to be tempted by the notifications, so you can create a habit using the tiny habits method that after I sit down at work, I'll turn off notifications for this app or, or what have you. There's other things you can do, but they will all fit in one of those two categories. What's a simple behavior I can do automatically, a habit that will either reduce my ability or remove the prompt? Okay, so lesson one is to create habits that, that try and affect one of those two parts of our lives. Yes. What's lesson two? Is it? I mean, how do we start thinking about what kinds of habits we might want to instill in our lives? Oh, this is, this, is a, a more, this is more fun to talk about, right? Because with tiny habits and the method I outline in the book, it's not so much I'm struggling with food or social media. It's like pick any aspiration you have whether it's sleep better or improve my career or have closer relationships. And I map out step-by-step step the process for figuring out what are the right – let's take strength in relationships. What are the best habits for you to strengthen relationships? You don't have to guess. There's a step-by-step system. And then once you figure out what those habits are, how to use the tiny habits method to wire those in. So, for example, you might go through the process and – through a selection process that I call focus mapping, say, oh, here's, here's the one that bubbled up is I'm going to text my mom once a day and just say, hi, mom, 
as a way to build that relationship. So where does that fit in my day? Well, as soon as I sit down on the train on the way to work, I'll text my mom and say, hi, mom, right? And then doing that habit, even though it's so simple, very likely opens the door to more exchange with your mom. If that's what you want. If that's the relationship you want to build. But it's through that very simple behavior. Hi, mom. Texting probably takes you 15 seconds that then can lead to a transformed, improved relationship with your mom or whoever you want to strengthen the relationship with. When you're focus mapping, when you're kind of thinking about all the universe of different behaviors you might want to instill, um, what's the kind of guidance for listeners about about good and bad ones? I mean, I can chuck my phone out the window. I can put it in the fish tank. Um, I can can make it in. I can turn this color off on the screen. And this, thank you for this question. This, in some ways, is how my work, and I call my work behavior design, not behavioral design. A lot of people are using that for whatever they want to use it for. But at Stanford, we named it behavior design in 2011. One way it differs from behavioral economics is there is a way to figure out what is the best habit to do or the best behavior to do. And focus mapping is one of the methods. There's a a two-dimensional sorting process that I've taught for years and I outline in tiny habits that it's not going to go well in audio. So I'll just give the criteria. So there are three criteria. So after you explore a whole bunch of different options to strengthen your relationships or reduce your social media use or eat healthier foods, you then look for the ones that have three criteria. Number one, it's a behavior you want to do. So if you don't want to do it, don't pick it because it's not going to become a reliable habit. Number two, it's a behavior you can do. And the easier, the better. And the reason that simplicity matters is if it's super easy, then you're not reliant so much on motivation. Your motivation can even be low and you can still do simple behaviors. And number three, it needs to be a behavior that has impact. So if texting your mom doesn't have impact in strengthening that relationship, then that's not the right one to do. So what you look for is the optimal combination of those three. So given the 20 or 30 different behaviors or habits you could be doing, which one has the strongest connection with those three? And those are the ones you design for. And I've given those special ones a name, and I call them golden behaviors. So the golden behaviors have those three things that come together. You want to, you can, and it will have impact. And I suppose the $20 million question is how to make those golden behaviors stick. Yeah. People often talk about kind of the itch of of habits, you know, the way in which they almost unbidden you yeah. know, a desire to do something will come into your or in, in, into your consciousness when you're prompted and, and the other conditions are correct. How do you really get these good habits to yeah. become part of your lives? So, Surely that's the most difficult thing for people. Yeah, but it's easier than people think. And this is one of the – so I have a chapter in Tiny Habits where I, the chapter title is Emotions Create Habits and I explain how that works and I give the technique of how to actually do this, how to hack your brain. So – I'll give a quick example, and then I'll get to the general instructions of how it works. So let's say I want to wire in push-ups as a habit. And the 20 push-ups I make, it's super tiny to make it easier to do. I do two. And then I find where it fits in my life. What does it come after? And what I discovered in my life, it fits really well after I pee. So the tiny habit is after I pee, I will do two (laughs) push-ups. But I've not yet wired it in. The way you wired it in is after I do the two push-ups, I do a thing that in tiny habits, we call celebration. I go, awesome, or good for me, or I do a little dance, or I give myself a high five. Anything that helps me feel that positive emotion of success. Now, what works for me may not work for you. And so in tiny habits, I list a hundred different ways to celebrate. I give a couple exercises how to find your natural, authentic celebration. And when you 
do the push-ups and you feel that positive emotion, that's what hacks your brain and wires in the habit. Now, some people are, so, you know, I've coached 40,000 people in tiny habits starting in 2011, two to 300 people a week, on and on and on, it adds up. And p- some people resist the celebration piece, even though I'm trying to be very clear about it, they think it's optional, but it's not. If you want to wire in the habit, that's what you do. That's what's kind of like the fixer that fixes it in your brain. And the better you are at feeling an intense positive emotion, the better you are at celebrating, the better you are at creating habits. Is that the rewards loop that, that we often see in behavioral models? Yes, it is technically the reward. And I don't use that word because reward means lots of things. Mm-hmm. And I value precision. So I specifically avoid that word. But when you look at the technical, you're exactly right. The technical definition of reward, yes, you are manufacturing a reward for yourself. But if I use that word, what people often think is like, oh, I'll do push-ups for a month and at the end of 30 days, I'll go to a movie. That's not a reward. That's an incentive. But people will call that a reward. What you've got to do is your brain has to connect that behavior with the positive emotion. Oh, every time I floss, I feel awesome. Every time I do push-ups, I feel great, you know. So it's causing your brain to make that connection. I, I imagine you must have, a, amongst those 40,000 people, stories which are oh uh, t- yeah. totally transformative yeah. in the sense of, you know, people completely changing their lives. And with the publication of the book, people come, have come out of the woodwork like, oh, I liked your book, Zad. I took your you know, Tiny Habits course in 2013 and it totally changed my life. Thank you so much. So it's really surfaced a lot of at least not the details of the story, but people have reached out in pulling together tiny habits. So this book is not a technical book. It's not heavy reading. It's designed for everyday people to read and understand how to implement it. And part of that was to tell true stories about life's transformed. For example, Junie, and that's her real name. Some of the names we had to change, but all the stories are true. Junie uh, tackled her sugar addiction through behavior design and tiny habits. Another guy who we changed his name repaired the relationship with his adult son who was living at home. They had this contentious relationship and his home office was right next to his son's room and he would just, you know, 22 years old, no job, sit at home, play video games, conflict with his parents. And he was able to break through that and repair the relationship, which is actually my favorite story in the book because there's something so deep and primal. And in part, and I don't say this in the book, it's because this man who uh, we call Chris in the book, Mm -hmm. had a damaged relationship with his own father. And I don't explain that much in the book. And I'm going to get a little emotional here. And for him, when he found that he was going down the same path with his son, he and his wife were just just, heartbroken and so afraid. And then to be able to change that relationship and change the pattern with his son, just... It just makes me feel so grateful that I was able to share this with him because mm. that, I mean, relationships really, really matter. And at this time, and then his son, you know, and I do explain this part in the book, ends up getting two part-time jobs and was on his way moving out and on his way to college. And it came back to helping his son feel successful in cleaning the coffee filter. That little thing then led to all these other things that eventually repaired the relationship. I mean, that's an extraordinary story. But of course, like it can't it can't 
not everyone's lives can be transformed, I suppose. So, so when, or maybe you think they can be. Well, let me explain but, how it works. Well, no, I, I know. Here's, here's, here is my question. Okay. Um, what are the circumstances or contexts or people where this doesn't work? Well, people that don't make it tiny, like my own father. He's now with the program now. But early on when I was teaching tiny habits, you probably had just turned 80. And he's like, oh, I'm going to do 20 push-ups a day. I'm doing tiny habits. And I'm like, Dad, that is not tiny. He's like, oh, but I'm going to do it. And it's like, okay, good luck. And in my mind, it's like, this is not going to work. Okay? So if people don't truly make the new habit tiny, they're doing it the old way that doesn't work. If people refuse to celebrate, well, you're refusing to wire in the habit. So I don't want to say the people that don't follow the directions, but that's part of the answer. If And you've got to pick habits that you want, not the shoulds. Now, in all of this, nobody's perfect in forming habits or changing their behavior. And that's part of the mindset that I'm advocating, part of the mindset of tiny habits, that it's a process and you'll discover what works and what doesn't. And if it works, keep going. And if it doesn't, redesign, but don't blame yourself. It's not a character flaw. It's a design challenge. And you simply look at it and redesign and find a better place for it to fit, or you scale back from 20 push-ups, dad, to two counter push-ups in your bathroom, and then you can grow from there if you want to. So, the, I mean, the, these behavioral models are obviously extremely powerful in their capacity to change yeah. the, how people behave. Is it? Do you ever kind of pause for a moment? And, and I know from the very beginning you realized that there was great capacity for these to be applied and used by people to empower themselves yeah. and to be applied by other people to change the way they behave both for good and for bad. Are we living in a moment now where there are like dueling fog models on both sides <laughs> of the equation? You know, like you can equip someone in this book yeah. to try and use a behavioral model to detail themselves from Instagram. Right. And Instagram has used another behavioral model to try and keep people on Instagram. So are yeah. we in the moment where basically there's just like behavioral models on both sides of the equation rumbling along, trying to c- competingly instill habits in people? Certainly. And one is much better funded than the other. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when people say, oh, I'm addicted to my mobile phone or why are people addicted to their mobile phone? I really don't like that framing. First of all, it's not the phone. Okay. It's an experience people are having on the phone. Let's get clear that I use Pocket. I use Google Maps. I use my podcast player. Those are all super things, right? Those are not problematic. And then addiction is kind of a tricky word. You know, it's like, it's hard to define. So it's better if we talk about what are unhealthy uses or problematic uses of specific things, whether that's Instagram or Facebook or video games. I mean, in the case of Facebook, Early on, especially when they changed their privacy policy, I think it was about 2011, and I was I tried to get journalists to write about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is freaky. And one man owns this and controls this whole thing, one person. And I basically, yeah, I still use Facebook, but I stopped talking about Facebook. I stopped teaching about Facebook. That would have been even earlier where it's like there's so much power condensed not just one company, one person. And that freaks me out. Then we have these voice AIs in our home. I'm very suspicious of that, you know? And then we have self-driving cars. There's a super dark side scenario, though. I mean, yes, I think it's going to be good in some ways, but it basically 
if you fast forward, and so this is what we did early on with persuasive technology, is exploring what could go wrong. And I've done that with self-driving cars. And there's some serious downsides of self-driving cars and being captive in these vehicles that can transport you anywhere against your will. Now, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I sounded crazy back in the 90s talking about this as well. So exploring the opportunities, yes, but also looking at the potential dark sides and trying to head those off if we can. But there's a lot of financial backing right, to so, so, these things. And that's and that, I, I think that's a, a completely key point. So we've got behavioral models for everyone, thanks to your book. We've got behavioral models within the platforms. As you said, that's not a fair – in a sense, there are billions going into one side of that equation yeah. and everyone else is just kind of on them by themselves. How can people possibly – resist and reform a series of habits yeah. which have been kind of you well, know tested a b tested yeah. to the absolute ninth degree with some of the uh, most talented designers and psychologists and technology developers in the world constantly yeah. thinking about how to make their models more powerful and their platforms more compelling for people to use yeah. well in some ways it is a battle on our side at stanford the class i taught last year at stanford was all about creating this tool that would help people reduce screen time and so we've collected 150 different solutions. They're not ours. But what the, the creation is that my students have done and now in my research lab is creating an algorithm where you go to screentime.stanford.edu, you answer a few questions, and then we present to you three different ways that we're predicting will help you reduce screen time. So we call that screen time genie. And so the, the acknowledgement there is there's no one way that everyone can do. I mean, yeah, move to Maui off the grid, you won't be on your screens, but not everyone can do that. Um, but there's going to be different solutions for different people. But what people need to do is find, let's go back to golden behaviors, find the golden solution for them. And so the point of that course and the research is, can we create a tool that for people who want to reduce their screen time, a surprising number of people don't want to. And we found also in our research that people want other people to reduce their screen time, but not their own. But for people who want to, there's a way to discover and be matched with the best solution. And so that is ongoing research in my lab that people can go to screentime.stanford.edu and play around with that. It's a work in progress and we'll hopefully make it better. That sounds tremendously valuable. And I, I suppose like one of the things which is really valuable about that is the way in which you're trying to kind of interweave the ability for people to form habits into the very technology and things that they yeah. use. Because I guess going back to your point around friction and the importance of making activities really, really easy, kind of one of the problems that we have in this, in this whole arena is that on the one hand, the platforms have designed a series of frictionless activities mm -hmm. to become really highly used. Yes. Um, but often like the, the ethics or the, the morals um, are outside of that platform. So they're an external framework, which is actually very difficult and fri friction for us to apply. Yeah. So, so what's the future of kind of privacy or ethics by design and, yeah. and personal habit formation by design? Yeah. Do we really need to put the teachings of tiny habits yes. into all the platforms which we use every day? Yeah, and so two layers of this. One is what Tristan Harris is doing, and man, he's doing great work. And his thinking on this has, I don't want to say it's evolved, but it's gotten richer and richer and deeper and deeper. And he's shining a spotlight on the business models of these companies and how that leads to certain products and outcomes. The only place that Tristan 
Tristan and I have disagreed over the years is exactly that. I don't feel like I can change the business model of Google or Facebook or Twitter and so on, but I know I can help people change their individual behavior. So that's how I see, yeah, we can help people create policies in their homes around phone use. We can help churches talk about how do you use social media appropriately and so on. In my own life this year, I was in charge of my family reunion, which is like 45 fogs gather in Idaho, where my parents are from, on an island. And because I was in charge, I got to set the theme. And the theme was airplane mode. In other words, (laughs) you can't use screens while we're together because one of the frustrations is we come from all over the country and people sit there and they're on the phone. I thought people would rebel. They loved it. So helping people see how they can take control as much as possible And I think it can happen with individuals, families, churches, and developing, you know, I met with some people connected to the British government today, and I was hoping the conversation would go this way, but it didn't. But the idea of saying, here is the etiquette, or here's, it's more likely that the Brits are going to do the Americans, especially right now, (laughs) but here are the 10 things that you do to use screen time in a positive way in your life and socially. You don't use screens at a restaurant. You don't, you know, X, Y, and Z, and really lay out the specifics. That hasn't been done as far as I can tell. I think it's coming. I don't know who's going to do it. I don't really feel it's the role of my lab to do this, but I certainly invite people to get prescriptive about what are the positive, uplifting ways to use technology and what are things that are should and could be avoided. I tweeted about three months ago, just very quickly, you know, I'm predicting that People being chained to their phones will become low-status behavior just like smoking. Apologies to people I'm offending. That just took off. It became headlines. And I really do believe that, that as we look at what's really going on. So you stigmatize the behavior. Yes. Okay. How that happens? Is it a celebrity? Is it a campaign? Is it a song? I don't know. Is it just a sense from younger people like, oh, man, you know, I'm being taken advantage of by the man. I'm not going to give into that. I don't know how it happens. But it already seems to be emerging among some people that if you're always chained to your phone, that's not high status. That's low status. That's like being addicted to cigarettes. Who dropped the ball when it came to the kind of weaponization of behavioral models? You know, who, who, U.S. Who, government. No, yeah. I, no, I well, no honestly, like, like, yeah, who, 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 who was it? So we've got this very powerful kind of like sometimes liberatory, sometimes imprisoning yeah. body of thought. Yeah. Clearly, there has to be a series of like clear rules about how it can be applied. Those rules, and you might want to argue back on me, but I'll say those rules have absolutely not emerged right. in any kind of enforced way. Therefore, we've been left with essentially the private moral determinations of technology exactly. developers. You know, and of course, right. like if you ask a technology developer, you know, do I want do, do, do I want to use your app? The technology developer is going, to, yeah, I would use my own app. Like that, that yeah. that's not generally a good way of enforcing moral standards. You know, was this the U.S. government? Should have then there have been well, professional standards and technology developers yes. from the very beginning, earlier at least. It, we probably from the beginning. Why have we been so slow? Why have we been so slow? As well? I don't know. I mean, I really. I mean, I'm a huge optimist. So when my book, Persuasive Technology, came out in 2002, where I said, "Here's what's happening. Here's the good things, and here's the bad things." I thought that'd be picked up on. I thought, I mean, if you read the final paragraph of my book, it's like, okay, here's what's going on, and let's create these ways of at least hedging our bets that this will be used in positive ways, not negative. 
I thought people would pick up on that. My book was never a bestseller. Tiny Habits is a bestseller, yay. But that book, despite the fact that people say it's the playbook of Silicon Valley, no, it never sold that well. It was just too early and people didn't care. Then with the formal testimony to the government, it's like, okay, now it's on their radar. It just... So in that case, I would say it's clearly was a failure of somebody within policymaking because, you know, they invited scientists to come say what's going to go wrong and then they didn't actually listen and take action. So it's – I don't know who necessarily – now, there's another side to it where it's the training of developers. And I do this in my class, but it's you – no, know, I only teach a handful of people every year. And I run people through scenarios. You've joined a company. They put you on a new project. You know this project is not – you know, very liberating. You're enslaving people, but now you have a mortgage, you have a kid in school, and you need the income, and right. you're afraid to... And a series of professional incentives, and yeah. you've got to grow. Yeah. And How so, do you do it? So we re- we talk about it, and we rehearse what they can do. So we actively rehearse. That's just a handful of developers every year. I'm hoping something like that will emerge where there is this systematic training of how people you know, from engineers to user experience designers can push back and say, no, this is, this is a bad thing. Yeah, it makes money, but life isn't just about making money. It's about helping people achieve their worthy aspirations. In the same way, for instance, as say Google pushed back on the use of AI within warfare yeah. and like, say almost like a kind of like worker revolt yeah. in some of the tech Well, and this is one of the things I, I let my students know is, look, you do that. If you get fired, you're going to have another job right away. And the fact that you got fired for being ethical, bam, people are going to want you. So don't feel like you're desperate to keep that job because doing the right thing always pays off. Now, there may be a few weeks or months where you don't have income, but man, you do the right thing. And I say, of course, get in touch with me and I'll help you, you know, I'll connect you with a good organization. Now, that can't happen with thousands and millions of people around the world, but Maybe even sharing this with you could inspire people to actively teach and rehearse those scenarios with people they're working with and maybe within companies. And it's happened with some companies where they do have an ethic, an active way to evaluate what they're doing and the impact on people and so on. Now that goes, you know, against their business model. So, bam, Tristan, you go. Time well spent. You guys go. doing awesome work. It's a tough problem. If it were simple, we could have solved it by now. I want to ask so many more questions about this, but I, I, I'll ask. I, I'm being indicated, so I've got one more question, and I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go back to the um, to the book for this one. So, if if you had one message for the prospective tiny habits reader, yeah. what one one message about why why they're currently getting it wrong, and how tiny habits fixes the the problem of habit formation? What would it be? What you've heard for decades about how to change your behavior is mostly setting you up to fail. So forget pretty much all of that, and there's a new, better way of doing it. And it's a, a, almost a, I don't want to say a 180, but it's a very different approach to changing your behavior, and it's easier than you think. And because it's so easy and approachable, there's no reason to delay. Just dive in and start now. Thanks very much, BJ. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.